Good morning. Happy Mother's Day. It's great to see you all this morning. My name is Jason Averill. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace, and I am so thrilled that you are able to join us. Um, it's kind of a light crowd, but honestly, more than I would expect on, uh, you know, graduation week and Mother's Day. So thank you so much for being here. Uh, so we have started a sermon series for the summer, and the, uh, the sermon series is The Study of God, and this is theology, basically. You know, what is it, what is God, who is God, this is what we'll be doing all summer. And so we'll be focusing on the attributes of God throughout the summer. Wilson kicked us off with just the general overview of theology and why it's important, why we study it. And then last week we went into what it means that God is the infinite one. What it means that he is without any limits. Today we'll be looking at who God is from the primary name that he gives us in scripture, that he gives to Moses in Exodus, that he is who he is. He says, I am who I am. So that's what we're going to be studying today. So let's pray, and then we'll jump in. Father, Lord, it is a wondrous prayer to gather together to know you better, the infinite, transcendent, holy, righteous, beautiful one. Lord, this is a privilege that we often take for granted, and it, in some sense, it's good that we do, because we are your children, and you have granted to us that we know you. But Lord, we do ask that we not, uh, we not grow cold in our heart whenever we think about theology, when we think about studying you. Instead, Lord, enliven our heart to it. Because when we study you, Lord, we, we get to know you better. And the better we get to know you, the more in awe of you we will be, the more in awe of your love for us that we will have. Thank you, Lord. Holy Spirit, we do pray for, for this worship service. We pray that you be active, alive, drawing our, our eyes continually to our great Savior and to our glorious Redeemer. Make him very big in our eyes. Make us, make ourselves very small. And let us see only him. Let us not leave here unchanged. Amen. So like I said, this series is all about theology. It's what we call theology proper. This is the study of God. So there aren't any ancillary things. It's not studying who man is. It's studying specifically who God is. And we're asking the question today, who is God? And Moses, when he came on the scene in Exodus, he was also asking that very same question. 
You know, if, if you remember the story of Moses, as a baby, he was put in a basket into the Nile, and he was floated down the Nile River, and he was fished out of the Nile by the princess, by the daughter of Pharaoh, and he was raised as an Egyptian in the palace. He was an Egyptian. But then when, when he grew to adulthood, he wasn't content to be an Egyptian prince. In fact, he, he knew that his call was to go to his people and save his people. And he saw one particular Egyptian abusing the Israelites, and he went and killed him. And therefore, he became a fugitive of, of the state, and he ran. And then he set up shop in Midian. He married Jethro's daughter, and he became a shepherd. And he was there for many, many years. And he didn't really know who God was. He had a, a vague concept of it, but he didn't know who God was. And so he's out, he's taking the sheep uh, to pasture, and he comes upon this bush that's burning but not being consumed. And God speaks to him there, and that's where we come into the story today. So, turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. Our uh, scripture passage today is verse, verses uh, 13 through 20. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they asked me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. Thus far, the reading of God's word, all men are like grass, and all their glories are like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but not God's word. It stands forever. So let us turn our attention to it. So... Today we're going to be looking at three things from this text. We're going to be looking at what the name of God means here. 
We're going to be looking at why he gave it to the Israelites. And we're going to be looking at what it means for us now. So what does it mean? Why he gave it? What does it mean for us now? So what does the name of God mean? Um, so God has given many names throughout Scripture. Many, many names. And in fact, if, if you categorize them, they can loosely be categorized in two separate groups. We have names like the Almighty, the Holy One, the Everlasting God. And these are, these are names that kind of highlight pieces of God. They highlight his attributes. And then we have other names that he gives us, like Shepherd and Redeemer, Husband. And these highlight his relationship with his people. How does he interact with us? But this name, this name is unique out of all of the other names. Hear it again in verse 13. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, the Hebrew here is, is really interesting. It's eway asher eway. I am that I am. And closely connected to that, I don't know what that static is. Sorry about that. Closely connected to that name is the name Yahweh, which translated literally means he is. And he uses both here when he's identifying himself. He's saying, I am who I am. And he's saying, he is has sent you. And theologians see this name that has been given as a name that's just full of meaning. It's deep and rich and profound. And it's utterly unique in all of the ancient world. We don't see any other gods in the ancient world identified like this. We see gods given the name of like Molech, which is the Hebrew, one of the Hebrew words for king. Or Chemosh, which is one of the Hebrew words for family, which is odd. But we hear the name of Baal, and that's a Hebrew word for Lord. And so these are the names that are given to some of the other gods. And if you look through, like, Moses' context, he's coming out of Egypt. He's coming out of the pantheon of Egyptian gods, and they had hundreds of gods. They had pretty much a, a god at every street corner. And yet, they were all identified with names that kind of associated as their sphere of influence, like Ra. He was, he was the god of the sun, Osiris. He was god of the dead. Hopi, she was god of the Nile. And that's how they identified. But this name, this name is unique. I am, I am who I am. It's singular. So, names in the ancient Near East kind of meant something. And we see that a lot in the Bible. Um, to know an individual's name was to know something about them. It was to know some deeper truth about them. And so we get like Abraham. His name means father of a multitude. 
And we get Jacob, whose name means grasper or thief. And that's what he was until his name was changed to Israel, which means he who contends with God, he who fights with God. Moses himself had, had a kind of a double entendre name. His name means to draw out, and that you know, highlights how he was drawn out of the Nile, but it also highlights how he drew his people out of Egypt. Solomon, which means peace. And in all the kings of Israel, Solomon was the only one to reign. His, the entirety of his reign was a reign of peace. Manasseh, one of the most evil kings in the entire list of kings in the Old Testament. Manasseh means forgetter. One who forgets because he forgot who God was. And to know the name of a God is to know something about that God, and it also gives you power somewhat over that God. Okay, so whenever you knew the name of a God, you could use that name and maybe offer up a sacrifice and get the God to do something for you. And that's the conception of what names were. And so when Moses asks God what his name is, some people actually think he was working out of that mindset. That he was saying, you know, what name can I have to get control over you? A lot of theologians see that. But God answers, I am that I am. You can't define me by one particular name. This is as close as it gets. I am. And in a very real sense, this is actually the most complete name that God could ever give, that he actually is, that he has being. It tells us about his aseity. Now, aseity, that's, that's kind of a $5 theological word, and you can forget it as soon as this is done. It really just means self-existence, that he exists of himself. Nothing caused him to came in, come into being, that nothing can cause him to go out of being because he is being. He owes nothing to anything. He is being. Paul kind of highlights this when he's talking to the Grecian philosophers at Mars Hill. This is Acts uh, chapter 17, verse 27. Paul says, Yet he is actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And he's highlighting the fact that everybody who lives actually has their being from God. God has his being from himself. And in John chapter 1, the very beginning of his gospel, in this grand salvo that he launches about Jesus he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. That everything was made through Jesus. Everything has its being in Him. Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, says it this way. He says... That in Jesus, in 
guys. I didn't copy it down. Sorry. He says that in Jesus, everything holds together, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power, that he sustains everything in existence by the word of his power. Even when he was here as a man, he is sustaining the world. There's another aspect to the name as well. It's uh, that he is the eternal one. You kind of get the sense of this as the name is used. It's in the present tense. I am who I am. And he doesn't stop there. He actually in verse 15 says this. God also said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. Forever his name is I am. And it has this sense of the eternal present. There's also an interesting thing that happens in Hebrew, and you don't see it in English because our verb tenses just don't work like this, but this could actually be conjugated as I am who I am. It could be I will be who I will be. It can be I was who I was. You kind of get all three tenses there in this one particular conjugation. And we see this further in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9, we're told that he is the everlasting father. Isaiah chapter 46 reads like this, for I am God and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from the ancient times, things yet undone, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. He is the everlasting one. He is the one who sees all of time in one instant. All of time is one continual present for him. And it's kind of hard for us to conceptualize that. Peter tries to, in, in his letter, 2 Peter uh, chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, he says, uh, for a thousand years is as a day to God, and a day is as of a thousand years. He's trying to capture this idea that God is present eternally now in all times. And yet, at the same time, time, he is not bound by, by what we would call time. That's a hard concept for us. We're temporal beings. All we know is the passage of time. And so whenever we think of God and all of his eternity, we tend to think of an infinite regress to the past and an infinite procession to the future and that's it. But that doesn't capture what the eternal I am is. Because the eternal I am is the one that created space. He's the one that created time. He created them and so he has to transcend them both. He has to be outside of them. He experiences all time at once. He experiences all being at once. Gives everything else its being. And yet... He is above them, beyond them. So why is this important? All, is, all of this is kind of, you know, far off and esoteric. You're talking about God's transcendence. 
Well, it's important, one, because it's who God discloses himself to be, but also because his transcendence is actually what makes him magnificent. That's one of the things that makes him so majestic. Why did God give this name, though, to the Israelites? Why did he give this eternal I am as his name? Well, at its most basic, it's just so that they could know him. When you're talking about God in such a transcendent being, it's, people are completely unable to know him without his own disclosure without him disclosing who he is, without him coming to people and telling them who he is, nobody could know him. And look how utterly confused all of the world religions back in this day were. None of them had a God that said, I am. That everything that exists comes from me. That everything that exists holds together because of me. That didn't happen. No other, no other religion came up with that and couldn't because God didn't disclose himself through those religions. He told Moses who he was. It was important that they know. But there's another reason other, you know, beyond his own self-disclosure. There's another reason why it was given them to know. In verse 15 again, God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, to be remembered throughout all generations. And then he says it again in verse 16, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise I will bring you up out of your affliction. He's connecting with them in, through their past. Okay, the Egyptians had subjugated the Israelites, and the Israelites knew how they had come to be in Israel. They knew that back 400 years ago, they had been brought out of the land of Canaan into the land of Egypt. And they had been brought there to save, God brought them there to save them from a drought. He saved the covenant family by bringing them into Egypt. This is the same God, he is saying, who brought you into Egypt. It's the same God who covenanted with your fathers. It's the same God that interacted with Abraham. It's the same God who promised Abraham that his descendants would be so numerous that you couldn't, not even all of the stars in the sky would be equal to them. That they would be so innumerable that they would be like all the sand on a seashore. And this was starting to happen. They had grown into this massive people over this 400 years. And he's saying that, listen, I'm the person 
I am the person that promised all of this to Abraham. And he didn't see it, but you're seeing it now. And you're seeing that I fulfilled my promise to Abraham. And then he makes a promise to them that he is going to bring them out of Egypt. And so at the same time that he's disclosing who he is, part of who he is is the God that saves them. Part of who he is is the God who makes good on all of his promises, who will bring them out of Egypt, who will save them. And so this is going to happen, God says, even though Pharaoh is going to be dead set against it. Pharaoh is not going to let it happen willingly. In fact, it's going to take my mighty hand coming down on Egypt to make it happen. But it will happen. God himself is the eternal I am, is with them and will be with them as he leads them out of Egypt. So what does it mean for us? What does it mean for us that God is the eternal I am now that we have the full revelation of God in Jesus? What does it mean that he is the great I am? That's such a big topic we can't even discuss. We can't even discuss half of it here now. In fact, it takes the entirety of the New Testament for the... (coughs) for the disciples and apostles uh, to kind of work out what that means. But we do have some really, really good highlights. So going back to the beginning of John's gospel, it says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. That Jesus is identified there as being with God in the beginning and who was God. And then fast forward to John chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 58, he says, he's talking to the Pharisees, and he's kind of been sparring back and forth with them. And they're saying, by what authority do you have to say the things that you're saying? And he says, I tell you truly, before Abraham was, I am. He's declaring once and for all that he, Jesus, is the great I am. And that's weird because Jesus was a man. Jesus was a man. The New Testament doesn't stop there. Jesus had just claimed that he is fully equal with God, fully equal with the Father, And then Paul says in Philippians, what? That he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. Why? Why? The eternal I am, the transcendent Lord of space, time, and dimension, had become small. He had lowered himself. He had took on human form. He had become a man born under the law, born to fulfill the law on our behalf. Why? Because we couldn't, and he loved us. We were condemned, and he loved us. 
And so he became a man and lived a perfect life for us. The sovereign Lord, because he loved us, died the death that we all deserve on the cross. Also that we might become one with him and share in eternal life. This means that Jesus is fulfilling the covenant promise all the way back to Abraham and before. What was the promise? The promise is that Abraham's descendants would be so numerous that they would outnumber all the stars in the sky and all the sand on the seashore. And Jesus is claiming a people for his own and making that promise come into a reality. He's fulfilling the promise that is made in Ezekiel, the promise that even though our hearts are broken and stony, he's not going to leave it that way. In fact, he's going to take out our stony hearts. He's going to give us a heart of flesh, and he's going to even put his spirit in us, uniting us with the eternal one forever and ever. Also that he might save us. The eternal I am who declares the end from the beginning. The sovereign Lord. He is the one who comes to us. He is the one who works in us. He is the one that binds us to himself. All so that we can have eternal life. And it is so sure that Paul when talking about eternal life that's been given to us. Can even say that even now we are reigning with Christ in heaven. That's how sure it is because when you see God present as the eternal I am in every moment, he's already, in a sense, present with you in glory because he already sees it. He already experiences it. That is why it's so important. That's why this name above every name has been given to us. So that when we connect this with Jesus, we know that our faith is secure. That we cannot be cast out. We cannot, cannot ever fall away. We cannot die. Because even though we die, yet we will be raised again because we are bound inseparably to the giver of life, the source of all being, the one who sustains us through everything. Amen. Let us pray. Father, this truth is too deep to grasp. It's too glorious to comprehend, and yet you have given it to us as something to be believed in, as something that we can trust in. That you, the holy, transcendent Lord of time and space, that you did not, did not let that separation stand. Instead, Lord, you sent your Son to us. so that we could be forever in your presence all due to his righteousness and his record.
all due to his love and your love for us. Father, we ask that you drill this down into our hearts. We know that we are forgetful people. We know that we are prone to wander. And Lord, like Manasseh, we forget you often. Thanks be to God, though, that you do not forget us and you will not let us finally forget you. And we know that. We know that. Because of the work of Jesus in life and on the cross. Because of the work of Jesus in the resurrection, raising us to newness of life. Holy Spirit, we ask that as we continue worshiping you, that you make our glorious Savior big in our eyes. is in his precious, perfect, wonderful name that we pray. Amen.